1: and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with James M. Lundberg, author of the book Horace Greeley, Print, Politics, and the Failure of American Nationhood. Jake, welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Mark.
1: Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
2: Uh, So I am... um I'm an assistant teaching professor um, and the director of undergraduate studies in history um, at, uh, at the University of Notre Dame in, in South Bend, Indiana. Um, so I teach classes in U.S. history, and I direct our undergraduate program in, um, in, in history. What was it that led you to write a book about Horace Greeley? So this is a project that goes back to graduate school. Um, this, was my, this was my dissertation of very, very different, uh, very, very different product from the book. Um, <laughs> but I became interested in Greeley um, when I was reading for my comprehensive exams um, in my, I guess, in my my third year of graduate school, um, and I had to read Daniel Walker Howe's book, uh, The Political Culture of the American Whigs, which has a half chapter uh, about Horace Greeley and. I just became totally fascinated by this very bizarre character, um, you know, a newspaper man who was part intellectual, part politician, part celebrity. And it seemed like there really wasn't all that much out there about him um, at the time. Now, I, I wasn't the only one to see this. And there, there were some other books that came out while I was working on the project. Um, but the work that did come out didn't I don't think it really got at what I was most interested in, which was the print and journalism angle. Um, This is something that I'd been really interested in going all the way back to college. Uh, You know, I had been very taken uh, with Benedict Anderson's book about nationalism, uh, imagined communities, as many people uh, have been taken with that book. Uh, and, And Anderson talks about newspapers as this kind of key cultural infrastructure in the making in the making of modern nations, uh, which, which, you know, as a young college student, I thought was such a cool conceptual idea. Um, and so somehow, somehow stuff that I was really interested in, um, all came together in, in, in Greeley. Um, and so, yeah, I went with it.
1: I have to say this, one of the things I enjoyed about your book was how you explore Greeley at this really, uh, pivotal point in the emergence of American journalism, this transition from it being something of an elite press to being something of a mass press and his, the role that he assumes in this, the, how he envisions himself. It's difficult to think of of many people who preceded him, who had a similar, uh, uh, you know, oracular role who were uh, seeing themselves as not just producers of, of entertainment, but, but, you know, people that were you know, as public oracles who were seeking to, uh, you know, establish this vision. And I especially like as well, how you make it clear, it's not just that he sees himself as a person who's going to spout off on the issue of the day, but he has a very, you know, he has a vision that you identify and trace over the course of this very long career in journalism.
2: Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I think oracular is a, is 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 a good word for how Greeley sees and understands himself as a newspaper man um and how he sees and understands journalism. Uh, so so you mentioned that that he he comes up in 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 journalism at this moment when um the popular press is is absolutely exploding. so he's in he's in New York City. Um, kind of at the m- moment of creation for the modern pop popular popular press, there are these new uh, very cheap daily newspapers that are uh, that are coming out um, the 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 New York Sun um, later on a little bit a couple years later the the New york herald and these are papers that are incredibly incredibly popular and show you know this this great potential of the press as this this very very popular medium um, and yet to to Greeley, they're horrifying because they're full of all kinds of uh, kind of low, lowly what he sees as lowly content. they're 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 taking these stories and they're kind of scraping them from the underbelly of of urban life, something that Greeley is kind of horrified by, um, even though he he willingly moved to New York City. Um, <laughs> and so so he 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 thinks that the press is this incredibly powerful tool um for for kind of elevation for instruction for uh for for unifying people and kind of bringing them together and giving them uh kind of the correct political views and ideas um but he sees it as being as being kind of bastardized by by these these popular newspapers um and so that's really the genesis of his of his of his vision for himself as, as an as an editor it's it's something that he develops and articulates um, in response to this kind of revolution in the popular press that is that is going on around him, um, I
1: was wondering if you could maybe take us uh, back a bit. How does Greeley get into journalism, and then how does he get to New York? Where from? Where is he coming? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, um, so Greeley is a is a New Englander originally. Um, he was born into a kind of declining farm family in in New Hampshire um, as. As a, a child, his his father, when, when Greeley was a child, his father lost their farm in a place called Amherst, New Hampshire. And from there, the family kind of bounced around northern New England on rented and very, very unproductive farms. Um, Greeley very much resented his, his parents as people who were on the wrong side of these massive economic changes that were happening in the, in the beginning of the 19th century, um he sees them not as victims of these changes but as 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 kind of personal failures and so you know he he becomes this kind of wig modernizer striver type where he sees them as these backward people who have who have just failed to keep up with the times um, and when he's a teenager he kind of splits with the family um it's not it, we we don't know that much about his early life because there's there's very little documentation about it but Um, while the family is in Vermont, he kind of splits off from the family and becomes apprenticed to a printer in this tiny, tiny town in Vermont that happens to have a newspaper, uh, that's called the Northern Spectator and the town is called East Pulteney, Vermont. Um, and he works at this, he works as an apprentice and he works this paper for, for a few years. Um, and, you know, if you are a young printer, um, in the 18, late 1820s, 1830s, he goes to New York in 1831. Um, New York is a good place to go. Um, as I said before, This is New York to him is this kind of complex and terrifying place, uh, one that he really never got comfortable with, but it was a place that was exploding in print and um, um, journalism. And so it's a good place to go if you're a penniless printer from the sticks, who has you know <laughs> who has memorized Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, um, and so you know he goes to New York City in 1831. He works in various print shops um, first, as, you know, just as, as a kind of journeyman printer. Um, he tries his hand at a couple of failed ventures, including a short-lived daily newspaper, um, before he he found, um uh, a weekly paper called The New Yorker, which is kind of news and literary weekly, nothing to do with the modern New Yorker. Um, uh, this is a paper that's, that's kind of modeled on the the weekly newspapers that he grew up with um, and that he worked on while he was, while he was, while he's an apprentice. So that's kind of, that's kind of how he gets, he gets started. Uh, this is also I think a good point which
1: we can talk about a bit his involvement with politics because this is something mm-hmm. that – it's it's fascinating how we have this throughout American history, this uh, ever-evolving dynamic between uh, between publishing, print, journalism on the one hand and then the political scene on the other and you described not just his efforts and labors as a journalist and an editor, but you're also talking about this engagement that he has with politics, which in some ways is very surprising today. I mean, you have him actually getting elected to Congress at one point. You have him running for various public offices or or aspiring to various public offices Mm -hmm. without success. But you – so we're talking about a person who is not a, quote, journalist in the sense of just being only a journalist or only an editor, but we're talking about a person who is really a very public figure in a lot of different ways.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, he's, he's a a figure that I think, you know, maybe, maybe 20 years ago, uh, maybe 25 years ago would have been harder to place um, uh, because we, 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 we've tended to see journalism as being kind of, a realm of objectivity, or or aspirations to objectivity, um, kind of separate from from the the workings of politics. Now that has obviously changed very very dramatically with the rise of the internet and the rise of kind of partisan television networks and and, and so on. Um, so we can kind of understand what he was a little bit a little bit better um, in, in a way nowadays, uh, or in the in the present moment, but. But you're absolutely right. He he was um, a figure who who saw his journalism as being um, as being very very political um, and being really essential to the workings of politics. Um, in particular, for him, he he was he was promoting the, the 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 policies and ideology of of the Whig Party. Um. Uh. And so it, it you know he, he does kind of bleed over into into the political realm and he uses his power and and this kind of celebrity that he gets uh, in, in order in order to do that. It's also I think important to note,
1: as you do in the book, that it's not just about identifying with a cause in the sense of getting a readership, but that it's also can be very financially important because as you explain in the book, he's not much of a businessman.
2: No, he's a, he's a, he's a terrible, he's a terrible businessman, um, you know, right up to the end of his life. Uh, the, the end of his life, um, he, he's, he's basically, you would think that he would have, have made a lot of money. Um, and he really, he really hasn't, uh, because, because he's a terrible businessman. Um, but it, early on in his career, he, he is, he's caught between these two paradigms of, uh, of journalism. one uh, one, a kind of older paradigm that is very much tied to um, the the kind of operations and organization of political parties, where newspapers are party organs and they're they're kind of supported by political parties. Um, but he's moving into an age where newspapers are becoming independent. So like those those penny newspapers or cheap cheap newspapers that I mentioned earlier. Um, they're independent of political parties. Um, they are, they're supported just by their, their sales on the street and their, and their subscriptions. Uh, and Greeley as this political editor is, is kind of caught between these two, uh, caught between these two, these two business models. Ultimately, um, you know, he does, he does succeed in making the New York Tribune, the, the newspaper that really, um, made him famous and was his, was his major platform. He does succeed in making that independent of uh, of, of party organization, but it's something that uh, that takes some 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 doing. That's where I thought it was really interesting
1: uh, getting into that part of the book, which is that you, you describe how people were making it profitable, like you know, like Bennett with the New York Sun, mm-hmm. and it was much more of the sensationalism. It was much more of the the you know the dirty underbelly of, of New York, as you put it, and and how this is the kind of thing that that was off-putting and so with Greeley it seems like he is bringing a bit more of a older aesthetic and showing how it can profit in the then modern you know 1830s 1840s uh, publishing marketplace in New York City
2: right exactly he, he he wants to show that you can have a kind of um, a, a, a newspaper that can succeed in the marketplace uh, without playing to the kind of base interests or, or low grade tastes of the masses that you can have a kind of elevating and uplifting newspaper that can also survive, um, on its own. So in the, in the prospectus of, of the Tribune, when he's about to start it, he calls it, I think a paper that should be welcome at the family fireside or something like that. Um, when he, when he founds the, um, uh, the new yorker his 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 first weekly newspaper, um, he says he has a line about how there are people who tell us we cannot succeed without humbug, which is kind of for him describes uh, the 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 kind of untruthful uh, sensationalized workings of the popular press. and he he says, we respond to those people, we shall try. Um, and this is, you know, this is precisely what he wants to do. He wants to succeed without humbug. He wants to succeed without this, um, without this, this low level content that is just playing to, um, you know, the, the, the masses. So what was the New York Tribune
1: like as a newspaper and, and to whom did it appeal as a, in terms of readership?
2: Yeah, so the New York Tribune is, is a very funny thing um, because it's called the New York Tribune. Um, but its real base of support was outside of New York City. Um, again, Greeley has this this very funny relationship with New York. It's this place that he absolutely needs. Uh, he needs it in order to become the kind of figure that he becomes. Uh, but it's also a place that he that he kind of despises, and that let's be honest, doesn't really have a huge constituency of people who are um, who are. Kind of into what he what what he is what he is trying to do. So, the the Tribune is never never all that popular within New York City itself. It has this daily edition um, that has you know a modest circulation, but n- not not a circulation that matches uh, Bennett's uh, Bennett's New York Herald. Um, but he has this huge base of support outside of New York City um, in a weekly edition. So every week. Um, Greeley and his editors produce a kind of weekly digest of the Tribune, the, the Weekly Tribune, um, that goes out through the mail to places all across the country, especially, um, especially in the north, mostly, mostly in the north, um, and has this huge following of people, um, you know, extending from from northern New England into um, into the kind of Yankee parts of the, of the Midwest, all the way out into Iowa and, and, and Wisconsin. Um, and these people kind of worship Greeley. They, they, they see Greeley in a lot of ways as the oracular figure that he imagines himself to be. Um, they, first of all, they think that he writes every word of the newspaper, which is not, not true. (laughs) Um, but uh you know they, they really they really see Greeley as as this kind of this kind of voice um, you know and it was said that that the farmers and tradesmen in these far-flung places that would have had uh, subscriptions to the to The New Yorker that there would have be three things that they would read their their Bible their Shakespeare um, and 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 their and their tribute mm.
0: uh,
2: what, if I can indulge you with one more one more story about this oh, please do uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson um, was out on a speaking tour, um, in 1854. Um, as, as people like that did, he took a speaking tour to all the different lyceums and, um, public forums, uh, uh, around the country. And this was a reliable way to make money. And he's, he's way out in, in, in the Midwest. Um, and he's writing a letter about this experience to, uh, the Scottish thinker Thomas Carlyle. Uh, and he notes that he's kind of like a week behind Horace Greeley on the speaking tour. And he's just amazed and astonished at the crowds that Greeley is getting and the kind of buzz that Greeley is getting. Um, and he tells Carlisle that Greeley is the spiritual father of these people. Uh, and that he does all their thinking in theory at a rate of $2 a year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> so you have, you Greeley as a figure, and, and it, you make it, uh, a point in the book of noting that you know, we see him predominantly as a northern figure, and this gets to something that you sure. argue later in the book. But you also note that he does have a readership in the South, that while he becomes an incredibly controversial figure in the South in the 1850s, that you note by the correspondence he received in the South from the Southerners that he was actually – you're reaching out to an audience there as well.
2: Well, that's certainly what, what he hoped. Um, and he, I, I think he does have a small readership. It's very, very hard to, to kind of gauge exactly what that readership was. Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of anecdotal evidence that, um, Southern postmasters would refuse to deliver, uh, the, the, the Tribune to, 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 the, to the people who had paid for their subscriptions, their stories of, of, Copies of the Tribune being doctored to look like the New York Herald, so that they can trick the postmasters and get it out to the to the pe- these people in the South. Um, you know, so it's it's very hard to quantify what the readership is, but Greeley kind of divines this readership. He has this idea that 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 there there's this kind of massive of people in the South, especially the non-slaveholding yeomanry, who are who are desperate for. For something like the New York Tribune and are the kind of natural constituency uh, of the Tribune, and these are these people. If you can just get them the Tribune, if you can just get them the information and the ideas that they need, they will topple. Uh, they will topple the planter class. They will topple the slave power. So, like a lot of like a lot of um, Republicans, Lincoln was was the same way. This kind of sort of misplaced faith in the southern yeomanry. Um, and so, anything that Greeley gets from from the South and from these people who he thinks are out there in these great masses, he interprets as um, as evidence that, that 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 there's this kind of revolution that's just waiting. If you can just get them, uh, if you can just get them, the Tribune.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: This is relevant to what you're uh, examining in the book because you're not just talking about how Greeley is functioning with energy, you're talking about this vision that he develops, that he uh, that he advocates for, that he uh, that he promotes in the pages of the New York Tribune of, of, of American nation. What, what exactly is this vision of nationhood that he has? And uh, how does he develop it in, over the course of the 1830s, sure. 40s, and 50s?
2: Sure. Well, I guess the place to, the place to begin is to say that, that, like a lot of Americans in the 19th century, um, Greeley understood the United States, the American nation, in kind of providential world historical terms. You know, America was destined to stand as this model of liberty and self-government, uh, for the rest of the world to, to follow and emulate. Uh, but at the same time, there are these internal problems. You know, 40, 50, 60 years after the revolution, there are all these ways in which American nationalism feels incomplete, um, not fully realized. It's not this kind of organic idea or experience that it is for, uh, for European nations. You know, it's beset by these regional differences and these sectional tensions, particularly over slavery, um, that that keep on cropping up. Um, And so, you know, in the world that Greeley grows up in, and in the the print culture that Greeley grows up in, um, you know, I think there are really these ways in which American nationalism is oriented around the project of making the nation whole, uh, oriented around kind of resolving these these problems and contradictions uh, of of, of American nationalism. And so, you know, I I really think that his theory of journalism as a kind of unifying and nationalizing um, force comes out of that, comes out of the the kind of powerful and yet yet at the same time weak and kind of contradictory nationalism um, of the early Republic And the print culture that is very much geared toward trying to fix those problems and and contradictions. So he kind of takes that and and puts it into a a popular journalistic platform.
1: What is makes this so vitally important, as you point out in the book, is that he's doing this though at a time when you're seeing this growing sectional impetus. Yeah. Over the issue of slavery, and that's the tension that I in those chapters that I thought was really fascinating. How he is promoting this vision, and he never loses this vision. He he, he holds fast to this vision through his entire life, and yet yeah. he at the same time is trying to reconcile it with his response to this issue, which he doesn't shy away from. But he's trying to base it. it's it's sort of like he's he's got the square peg and he's trying to right. ram it into the round hole and he does right. it in, in in print for for decades.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I I think that it gets really interesting in the midst of the sectional crisis of the of the eighteen fifties. Greeley you know there's there's kind of this great irony of, of the story of Greeley in the 1850s he does exactly what he sets out to do in a lot of ways in that decade in the midst of the sectional crisis which is to create a community uh what what he what he called as a, as a young journalist a community of thought and feeling uh among people through through print through journalism obviously there there are other things other important things happening politically, the formation of the Rep- Republican party and so forth. Uh, but he's a really, really important figure in kind of helping to, to, to use Anderson's Benedict Anderson's language to imagine the community of the North, imagine the community of the Republican party um, through his journalism, And so he becomes an, a kind of Oracle um, in, in that process. But, but as you say, um, he becomes a, a sectional oracle. He becomes he becomes an oracle to to one part of of the country, and in a way that really accelerates um, the, the the growing sense of difference uh, between north and south. And and bec- he becomes a flashpoint for southerners in helping them to imagine the north as um, as a separate and distinct thing. That's one of the things that
1: I thought was really fascinating. That I did appreciate you could, because there's. You have also all these more focused abolitionist editors, people like William Lloyd Garrison, who are publishing and who are uh, who are the subject of much Southern ire. But as you point out, while Greeley himself is uh, not a f- supporter of slavery, th- he's not as, as strident on this. And yet many Southerners, as you identify, they find Greeley to be the more uh, – uh, uh, objectionable figure in in some ways. Yeah,
2: absolutely. They, I mean, they're certainly aware of William Lloyd Garrison. They're certainly aware of the abolitionist movement. Um, but, but in a way Greeley, Greeley is, is more frightening, um, because, because he has this incredible platform because, uh, the Tribune has this massive circulation, um, across, across the North. Um, and so they project a lot of their fears and ideas, um, and kind of horrors about the North and what they see as this kind of fanatical, um, abolitionist North onto Greeley, uh, again, because Greeley is, is, is so popular and has such a huge platform. I I thought it was interesting as
1: well, how you examine how it, how this uh, ish, this struggle, this this conflict, shapes Greeley's nationalism. How I, I love the way you defined it in the book, where you're talking about how he develops a, a sectional ideal of American nationalism. You know, it's, it's 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 much it's very it's much more, which is too understandable to a degree. Which is you know he's reflecting his background as a Yankee concept, but it's one right. in which he's basically sort of wanting to see the entire nation writ large as, as embodying that relatively parochial concept.
2: Absolutely. And this is something that goes back to his, his kind of hopes and dreams for the Southern yeomanry. Um, he sees those people as, as kind of dormant or sleeping Yankees. Uh, There's people who just, who just, again, just need Greeley uh, or, or somebody else to, to kind of tell them who they are. Um, uh, so absolutely it's, it's, it's this um, it's, it's this projection, you know, but it gets, it gets into what is a bigger theme in the book? This this just larger problem of what American nationalism is in the nineteenth century. In a lot of ways, the impossibility of American nationalism because nobody can really agree on 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 what it is.
1: Now, your description of Horace Greeley when I was reading it reminded me of another figure who had a very similar uh, background, which was Abraham Lincoln, in the sense that he comes from a, a group of a family of what you might think of as a, a fail farmer who develops a Whig identity from this and who then goes into politics and you have this point at which when Lincoln comes becomes president in 1860 I was expecting Greeley to you know welcome him with 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 open arms to see him as a kindred spirit but what you describe? when Lincoln becomes this national figure, and more specifically, when he becomes president, it is really isn't quite as uh, accepting of Abraham Lincoln. You describe a tension that exists between the two men uh, over the course of the Civil War. Why is that?
2: Well, I think, I think because he basically Greeley sees himself as a bigger deal than Abraham Lincoln. You know, like a lot of people, especially kind of, in the established Eastern world of, of kind of East coast or Northeast politics, um, you know, Lincoln is, Lincoln is this, is this kind of nobody. Um, and, you know, Greeley sort of expects that, that, that Lincoln should, um, should, should kind of follow his instructions, should, should, <laughs> should take his advice. And so, you know, there, there, there are all kinds of moments where, um, where, where Greeley, where, where this this kind of plays out in different ways. There, there's, um, th- their their paths cross at one point um, in in 1860 and uh, or late in 1860, early 1861, um, after Lincoln has been elected, and they're both on the same train, and uh, Greeley refuses to go see Lincoln. Uh, you know Lincoln is the president-elect, but Greeley thinks that Lincoln should come see him. Uh, you know, which again, just just back to this idea that that, that Greeley sees himself as uh, Greeley sees himself as as kind of a bigger deal than Lincoln, and so Lincoln should show due deference to him. Um, and this this plays out through 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 the Civil War, where where. Greeley kind of presumes to be able to tell Lincoln what to do. He writes, he writes letters to Lincoln, both private and public, um, sort of saying, this is, this is what you need to, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, you should just, you should just, you should just listen to me. So it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very fraught relationship. And it's actually a very fraught relationship from the beginning. I should mention that um, that going back to, um, Lincoln's election for Senate in 1858, or Lincoln's campaign for Senate in 1858, um, Greeley is kind of wishy-washy on whether or not he's actually going to support Lincoln when Lincoln is running against, um, Stephen A. Douglas. And this is something that Lincoln and his, um, you know, and his cohort do not forget. So, so <laughs> I, I was thinking
1: about how how Greeley's attitude mirrors in some ways that of another New Yorker of the time which is William Henry Seward. I was thinking about how there seems to be that New York attitude of you know, he, which is fascinating to see it in Greeley given that yeah. very uh you know fraught relationship that he has with his adopted hometown. But yeah. He he seems to definitely by the 1860s have internalized the sense that you know you're a New Yorker you can pretty much make those decisions for people.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Now, now, Seward is an interesting is is another interesting figure for Greeley because um, yes, they share this kind of imperious attitude toward Lincoln, particularly um, when Lincoln is just is just emerging. But uh, Greeley has also fallen out with 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 William Henry Seward by this point. Um, uh, they they had a falling out in in the eighteen fifties over over you know uh, political political matters and. Uh, kind of in the midst of the breakup of the Republican of, of the Whig Party and the creation of the Republican Party, um, and then here's another here's another kind of funny layer to all of this. Um, Greeley is really is really an instrumental figure in in um, doing in uh, Seward's presidential aspirations, and Greeley throws his support behind uh, uh, behind Lincoln basically to, to spite Seward, who he's who he's had a falling out with. So <laughs> this is all very complicated. So
1: how does Greeley respond to the Civil War over the course of it? Does he, uh, you know, to, to what degree is he trying to uh, fit the events to his nationalism? And to what degree does his nationalism change in response to the fact that you have the most, you know, dramatic, uh, you know, conflict and most dramatic challenge to nationalism in, in 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 American history.
2: Yeah, Greeley has a hard time with, with the Civil War. Um, that's probably the place to start. Uh, Link, Lincoln sort of sums this up uh by 1864, he says, Greeley is an old shoe, good for nothing now, whatever he has been. Um, and and you know the basis for this is that is that Greeley becomes this Really, kind of unaccountable figure during the war. Um, he is all over, all over the place in his uh, in his positions. You, you kind of get a, a case of whiplash after reading through his story of, of, of the war. Um, you know, there are moments when he seems like he's on the radical vanguard of the of the Republican Party um, uh, in in pushing for 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 immediate emancipation. Um, you know, at others, he is flirting with crackpot ideas for peace on very limited terms and seems willing to kind of sell out the whole idea of of, of emancipation. Um, um, so it's like, what exactly does this guy believe? What exactly does he think? Because y- y- you, you can't really understand what, what he's doing. And the way I try to understand it in the Civil War chapter is to say that Greeley could only understand this event in these national terms that he understood everything in, that this idea that the civil war had to be this kind of triumph of american of American nationhood that 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 had to be the outcome um, of of this of this massive of this massive conflict. Um, and so, you know, he's really he's really kind of forcing this onto. Um, onto, you know, events that don't really fit that, fit that scheme. And so, uh, you know, I, I sort of think his inconsistency comes out of this effort to make the Civil War into this, um, you know, the, the kind of, the, the triumph of American nation, even though clearly it is, it is, it is a moment when, when the American nation has fundamentally failed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, to what degree does this shape his postwar activities? Because you have this very, uh, on the surface, very uh, odd contrast with with Greeley as a uh, as a, a, a very much of a, of a, of a northern uh, you know editor, a Yankee editor who has championed this vision of nationhood that the Southerners rejected. Who after the war uh, uh, undertakes this dramatic s- series of steps, and most notably, he bails out Jefferson Davis. I mean, so to, to to what degree is it is it reflecting uh, is it a product of that experience of that effort to try to you know maintain that vision of nationhood?
2: Yeah, well, so 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 his kind of his understanding of this conflict shapes his his again seemingly unaccountable and bizarre um, uh, behavior and activity after it's over. Um, you know, if if the idea of Horace Greeley going to uh, going to bail out um, Jefferson Davis from jail um, is something that you know nobody could possibly have 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 predicted or imagined um, if they were just thinking about the the the, the antebellum um, uh, Republican Horace Greeley. Nor could they imagine Horace Greeley um, ultimately getting the Democratic Party's nomination for. Uh, for, for president in 1872. <laughs> um, but again, you know, this goes back to a, to, to a lot of what we've talked about here. Greeley has this idea that, that there is this kind of core nationalism that exists uh, across the country, um, exists among, among uh, white Southerners. Um, and he, again, thinks that if you just sort of can get to these people you can just speak to them the right way. You can kind of awaken this this shared feeling that must be uh, that must be within them. And in the midst of um, his bizarre travels through 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 the Reconstruction um, era until his death in 1872, um, he actually says that if we had just been able to reach these people before the Civil War. Um again back to this idea if they could just get them their copies of the New York Tribune, uh, there really probably wouldn't have been a civil war because we could have had we could have had um we could have had this kind of collective awakening. Um we we could have empowered the non-slaveholding whites, we could have had a gradual and easy end to slavery as opposed to this kind of destructive process um um you know with, with the with the war and so on. So his 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 path his very bizarre path through Reconstruction is is laid you know it comes comes uh, is is built upon the very bizarre path through uh, through the Civil War. And yet, it's also fascinating about how what it says about this
1: idea that he has of, of nationhood. I mean, it's it's impressive how committed he is to it throughout his career, as you demonstrate. How you know, you literally, the country breaking apart doesn't cause him to shake it; doesn't shake it much, right? And how he is trying to in you know, you know, he 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 sees this very much. This isn't about you know Horace Greeley saying you know I want to be president, although you know he definitely you know desires that but he really is trying to you know he sees this as part of achieving this vision of American nationhood which if anything he you make it clear now more than ever during reconstruction America needs to be thought of as a nation as opposed to the still very much divided country that it was in 1872
2: yeah yeah no, I mean as I say in the book you know four years of 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 just brutal civil war um, you know Seven years of uh, of of violent resistance to the results of the Civil War by by white Southerners. They just they can't shake Greeley of 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 these of these convictions um, that that he has.
1: Well, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
2: sure well that's it's a that's that's a good question because i've <laughs> I've been a little bit all over the place and trying to figure out what I want to do next um i've had've had, a, I've had a, a few different ideas and have have kind of been chasing down down some different leads um, but what I've been working on um, pretty consistently uh, over the over the last few months and seems to be the thing that i'm that I'm working on um, is a project about new york city um in the uh, kind of between eighteen fifteen and eighteen fifty, or eighteen fifteen and eighteen sixty, um, I really, really enjoyed uh, kind of getting into this world of New York City um, uh, through Greeley. So, you know, the the, the the in the first chapter where I talk about his rise in journalism, I was very, uh, very captivated by um, by this history of New York City and its moments of. Um, of becoming um the mo- its moment of becoming the kind of the the nation's metropolis um and everything that goes with that and so my idea is for a project i'm calling humbugs of new york um which is to, <laughs> which is to take that's that that was the name of a of a pamphlet that came out uh, i mentioned it in the in the book a pamphlet that came out in i think eighteen thirty seven um to take uh to take certain characters who are, who are phonies in some way or another humbugs, um, and use them as a way to try to create, um, this very, very bizarre thing that is rising up on the, uh, on the East coast, um, in, 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 in this moment, uh, and that place being, being New York city. So that that's what like, I've been up to.
1: It sounds like a very fun project. I, I hope that when you complete it, we can have you back on the new books network to uh, talk about it. I'd be, I'd be delighted. Well, Jake Lundberg, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule
2: to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too, Mark. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.